And we are continuing on with Ephesians 4. Pat has uh, did a fantastic job last week. Unfortunately, I was out of town, so I wasn't able to be here. Laying out Ephesians 1 through 3, which if you've ever read the book of Ephesians, you know there is a lot there. And in a very short amount of time, he really painted a beautiful picture of all that God does through the gospel and through Christ Jesus. And so now we're on Ephesians 4, walking the walk. And I thought that he really set the table beautifully talking about humility and the absolute essential nature of humility. If we're going to begin to walk this out together, if we're going to begin to understand and live outside of our union with Christ, then we have to, have to, have to be humble. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go ahead and get started. If you'd bow your heads, please. Good God, you are good and holy. Your love truly endures forever. You are one. You are one. Your Father, your Son, your Holy Spirit. You call us to you, to life with you. You call us to be united. You call us to be one as you are one. Lord Jesus, you say that we are a witness and a light to the world, and that when we love each other well, that says something to the people around us. My prayer this morning is that we would be a visible, tangible manifestation of that oneness as we are united by your Holy Spirit as one body that has been crucified with you and raised with you. So thank you for each person here. I ask that you would work boldly through the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and open by reading our text. Uh, but before I do, in order just to set the tone or the framework of what we're after, when we become Christians, oftentimes there's an assumption that as we believe, we're all of a sudden transformed and changed people. And in a sense, that's absolutely true. Paul says in, I believe it's Corinthians, that we are a new creation in Christ once we have become Christians. And yet the reality is, as much as we are a new creation, we bring all of our junk and our baggage into this new relationship that we have with Christ and with one another. And so when we come into life in the church, into the body of Christ, we bring all of our biases and our associations and our prejudices and everything else in right along with us. If any of you have seen the movie Miracle, uh, came out in 2004 with Kurt Russell that tracks the U.S. Olympic hockey team from 1980 when they defeated the Soviet Union, if you'll recall one of the opening scenes and all of these players have been gathered. It's a bunch of amateurs, college-aged players, who have different affinities and loyalties to their alma maters. And they're thrown together into one practice. And what happens immediately once they begin? A fist fight breaks out. They start punching each other. Now, how is it that men on the same team representing the same country could hate each other and want to punch each other? As much as they were on the same team, they really weren't. 
They were rivals and enemies under the same flag. And so Coach Herb, Kurt Russell says, well, let's just start with some introductions. Who are you? Where are you from? Who do you play for? And each player answers that question and says, oh, I play for University of Minnesota, Boston U. I want to put a question before you this morning because it's directly relevant to talking about how it is that we are going to be united or not united. And the question is this, who do you play for? Who is your primary association? Who do you play for? I'm going to read Ephesians just to reiterate. This is going to be chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 just to recapitulate what we did last week, but also we'll be talking in verse 3 a little bit. This is Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is where we get in. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to take a look at verses 3 through 4 because in these verses you're going to see the very tension I was describing within the miracle scene. It says, you're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then right after it says, there's one body and one spirit. Now, how can it be that we can be united and we can truly be one body in Jesus Christ and at the same time be told that we have to maintain it? How is it that the apostle Paul earlier in chapters 1 through 3, says that we have literally, when we become a Christian, we are in Christ and we are raised up into the heavenly places. We are united and with Jesus Christ in the body of Christ and us. We are with God and God is with us. And yet, at the same time, in light of that actual reality, we have to maintain that unity. How can those two things coexist? There's a tension there. That as much as we are on the same team, we may not be acting like we're on the same team. The commentator, John Stott, talked about it that though we are a family, perhaps we are separated and we are living on different continents. Perhaps we're not talking to one another. And what we're after is, is a visible unity. Wherein what was hidden and marred is coming together and is becoming one. That's who we are. And in fact, another commentator describes being a Christian is like being a pardoned rebel. And that's who we are. We're a society of pardoned rebels who are coming in to the same house, who have to learn how to live together, how to love each other. And yet we're one. And so this is not surprising in the history of the church and the history of God's people. If you look back and you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, what happened when father Israel, Jacob, he had 12 sons, immediately, what, they sold one into slavery. What happened when the kingdom of Israel after Solomon is the kingdom split? Two tribes in the south, 
kingdom of Judah, and then the kingdom of Israel in the north. The splitting has been going on for a very, very long time. Such that even when we consider Jesus and the 12 disciples, where were they coming from? It, was, it wasn't exactly a united, homogenous group of people. If you look at who actually was brought in by Jesus to become a part of his followers, to become the foundation, the cornerstone, the foundation of his church, it was made up of fishermen, it was made up of a tax collector, it was made up of a political rebel, and it was made up of a traitor. It's not exactly a recipe for success. And yet they're called into one family, one reality. It can be very, very discouraging when you look at the state of the church today and you see the number of denominations. If you look in the United States alone and you see the thousands upon thousands of different churches and you say, how is it that this is good? How is it that there can be this many churches? And it's terrible. But it's not new. And in fact, we would say it's been going back all the way to the beginning. There have been divisions within God's people all the way back to the first family themselves. We think about Cain and Abel and what happened there. It's hard to live together. And yet at the same time, we're one. And this goes all the way into, you would think after people seeing the resurrection, they would see Jesus, that actually this person who claimed to be God, who actually then rose from the dead, so they know all of the promises are true, and he raises up into heaven, how is it then that the people within the early church acted with one another? Well, it says immediately divisions arose within the early church. And within the book of Acts in chapter 6, I believe we see that the rise of deacons, some of whom are in here, the rise of deacons in this church and officers, was partly in due so that people would be ministered to equally and fairly. The division between Jewish widows and the division between Gentile widows. The very earliest parts of the church, the church was fractured and split. This is nothing new. This is something that we have been wrestling with from the very, very, very beginning. Now, we don't have a Jew-Gentile split, to my knowledge, within this church or within Dallas. Nobody thinks on those terms, and in fact, it's sort of archaic language to even suggest, oh, the Jews on one side and the Gentiles on the other. We don't think like that. We are in the Bible Belt. I mean, we are in Dallas, Texas. Nobody thinks like that. And yet, I want to put before you, because again, this is a text that has unity in its heart. Paul says it seven times. One, one, one. What happens when your wife says something to you seven times? She says it to you because she wants you to hear it. If she says, I like this, I like this, I like this, you know, I like it, I like this. How are you supposed to receive that? She likes it. I better pay attention. 43 words in English. 34 in Greek, approximately 20% of our verses have one word, one, 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 one. That is what we are called to be, and that is what is so, so very challenging. So what is it that keeps us from being one? I want to lay out for you four different causes briefly for what keeps us from being one, and then we'll come back and show what it then means to be united. 
First, let's look theologically. What are, what are the issues that keep us from being one? Well, first of all, we are Protestants. And we are Protestants here in Dallas, Texas. And the very history of this church, Park City's Presbyterian Church, is one that split from another church, Highland Park Presbyterian Church. Namely, which is a great church, by the way. I think y'all would all agree. It's a wonderful church. But there's been a fractious spirit within our world for a long time. And any talk of one starts to reek of liberals. The liberals. And there's good reason for that. In fact, if you look at the ecumenical movement within the early 20th century and mid-20th century, what you ended up with, you look at groups like the World Council of Churches, and you see this incredible visible unity, but then you peek underneath the hood and say, well, what is it that we believe? And you end up with this lowest common denominator where everyone's in. And we think, no, 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 surely that's not it. Surely that's not it. We're scared for good reason when we say we need to come together as one. Because what that usually means and has meant is that it means the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. The unshakable realities of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ oftentimes come into question. And we stand our ground and that's right. But then there's also this new age spiritualism that says, you know, I am with you and you're with me. If you've ever seen the movie Avatar and you see that they worship a tree and they basically get together and shoulder by shoulder and they kind of move back and forth. It looks like Kyle Field during an A&M game. <laughs> For a point of reference. And you think, what is it that they're worshiping? Who are these people? But again, all jokes aside about Aggies, whom we love. That has some sort of roots and an origin to it when we think about the fact that I am with you and you're with me and we lose our individual identity. We are part of this collective mass. Politically, it becomes a sort of collectivism, a sort of Marxism, a sort of sense of class struggle wherein my personal identity is given over to the group. And then it's about class against class. Religiously, again, we look and we see, this reminds us of a Far Eastern religion. I want to re read for you a quote from the author Herman Hesse in a sort of spiritual biography called Siddhartha, which is a sort of fictionalized biography account of the story of Buddha and the rise of Buddhism. I want you to listen to this quote of how everything comes together and is sort of one. Whether it is good or evil, whether life in itself is pain or pleasure, whether it is uncertain, that it may perhaps be this is not important. But the unity of the world, the coherence of all events, the embracing of the big and the small from the same stream, from the same law of cause of becoming and dying. Now, what does that mean? It means everything flows from one source and one river. Good, evil, we're beyond good and evil. It's all one. And so we're hesitant when Paul calls us to be one, because we don't want to be that. Let's look at it philosophically briefly. What's so hard for us to be one? Well, it's so hard, first of all, because there is a shared and lost understanding of what our truth is. 
Certain assumptions about what is real and what is true and what is good have been fragmenting. It can be epitomized by the late 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche when he says this, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. How can there be one when we can't even agree what the right way is? How can we be together? Sociologically, the study of groups and movements and dynamics, this is where we get a little more relevant directly to us here this morning. I cannot tell you how stressed out I become, truly stressed of the number of groups and associations that I'm a part of here in Dallas. It is exhausting. And what happens is with every group and association with which we involve ourselves, we get time is given to these things and priorities and rankings are given such that we become so divided that I don't have time for this church. And I'm a pastor. How is that possible? Let's go even further, and this is where I'm going to become really honest with you. Uh, I grew up in this church. I was part of the, uh, the split when the Israelites left Egypt and came over. It's a joke. It's not funny, but it's a joke. I grew up in a community a mile from here. I was identified by the elementary school I went to. Do you know how silly that is? People ask, well, what school did you go to? Not what college, what elementary school did you go to? Outside of here, people are like, what are you talking about? And then you think, well, what high school did you go to? Well, what college did you go to? Well, what are you doing now? Really? You're a youth worker. That's interesting. I'd love to volunteer. What do you do? It is extraordinarily difficult to make my identity as part of God's people primary because I'm so pulled in so many directions. And I will confess to you that growing up in this community, I identified more by the high school I went to than being a part of this church. I said, I'm a Scot. I am not a person who is part of the people of God. I worked at this church in the children's ministry while I was in seminary. And never once did I have somebody come up to me in that and say, you know what? I love this church, but I've got other priorities. This is my third favorite thing. This, this is my third favorite group. My, my first favorite is blank. My second favorite is this. And in fact, I can't be here because I have to be there. Brothers, I want to challenge you to look deep inside of your own heart to question your associations and your loyalties. Who do you play for? What team are you on? Let's look at this beautiful team that we're a part of. This is the team. It's a story that starts and says that there is one God there are no other gods. There is one God who made everything. There is a God who is three. There is a God who is one. We are part of a community. One God, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism. And this community, as Ephesians 2 tells us, is made up of a hodgepodge of people, people who are divided by every single societal metric, culturally, socioeconomically, religiously, and the blood of Jesus Christ, it says in Ephesians 2, washes away and breaks down the walls of hostility because we are all brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what this passage is telling us. It's telling us, it's asking us, it's demanding that we rank our priorities and our assumptions. And we would say this, that it is our primary identity to be associated as citizens and fellow heirs with God. That's our purpose. In fact, John Stott talks about it, that it is our purpose to bring in the heavenly realities down into earth. That's our purpose. We have one set of beliefs. You go back to the Apostles' Creed, you look at the Nicene Creed, you look at the Athanasian Creed. This is something that Christians have agreed to for hundreds of years. We could thousands of years. One story. This is who we are. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing in order for us to invite people in. So how is it that we can imagine ourselves inviting people into this story within this conflict of loyalties and associations? I want you to consider a lot of different things. One of my favorite things to do is to get a brand new nice golf shirt with the sort of dry fit Nike material. I don't know if y'all are familiar with those, but they are perfect for a Texas climate. And I inevitably always get one with the association or group that I'm a part of. And there's a crest here on my chest, or there's one on my sleeve. And those are my favorite shirts to wear. Brothers, I want you to consider, and you look with me in verse five, where it says, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The book of Revelation talks about the people of God, and the people of God are those who are marked with a seal. What is that seal? That seal is your baptism. Well, what is your baptism? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. It's on your handout. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Well, what does that mean? That means that is what is central to our identity is the reality and the story of Jesus Christ, both life, death, and resurrection. That when we consider our baptism, again, we think of something that's dunking in the, po in the booth, or that sprinkling of water. But what that is, is that's a sign of something that has really happened. And that is this, that Jesus Christ has both died for you and was raised for you. And when you bear that mark, that means you are associated and identified with that. That is your primary identity. That is who you belong to. And here's the payoff for it. It means that you got invited in. It means that Jesus looked at you and said, I want to be with you. 
I want you to come inside. And your story is going to be associated with my story. My death is going to be considered your death. My resurrection is going to be considered your resurrection. What does that produce? A lot of humility. Because then what brings me into relationship with God is nothing that I have done, but everything what has been done for me. The more and more I realize that I enjoy nearness and closeness to God because of what Jesus has done, the easier it is to invite other people in. When I consider that I've been brought inside to God's family, who am I to turn the other person away? Who do you play for? There are some incredible possibilities when we consider this. This is a very, very difficult community and neighborhood and church to embody this. It is really hard. I'm here to tell you as someone who struggles with it, who drifts into primary identity, sort of tribal associations, and I am calling you to consider what would it be like if we began to more deeply and deeply embody and believe and imagine life as one who is identified with Jesus Christ and raised with him, who would come in? What kind of friends would you have? How would life look different? I want to intentionally leave that open-ended for you. I don't want to answer because that's why we have tables and discussions. And I would be remiss if I were to assume that I know each and every one of your situations to say this is what you actually have to do. Because honestly, I don't. But what I do need to do is to call you and say that the Christian way is one in which our identity and our baptism with Jesus is primary. And it unites us and brings us together as one. We must unite together. This is what we are called to do. It's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for loving us. Um, thank you for inviting us in. Thank you uh, for looking past all of my silly um, hang-ups. Thank you for the gift of baptism, a sign of, what we, of who we are. Thank you that you want us all to be together and not to be isolated and separate. I pray that we would um, know and imagine what life can be like when we are living it together as one. It's in your name we pray. Amen.